Hi, I'm Adam Sobel, and this is Deep Convection. My guest on the podcast today is Jane Baldwin. Jane is on the younger side of our guest roster. She finished her PhD just a few years ago and is now in her first year as an assistant professor at the University of California, Irvine. And in between, she spent two years as a postdoc here at Columbia, working with Susanna Camargo, Jiaying Li, and me. So that's full disclosure. I might be a little biased because we've been working together and still are. But in my view, Jane is an extremely talented, exciting, and fast-rising young scientist. And I was particularly happy to talk to Jane in three dimensions here. We recorded this conversation in person at the 2021 fall meeting of the American Geophysical Union in New Orleans. Jane's combination of interests is non-traditional, at least for someone coming up through the places and programs that she has. But I think she's in the vanguard of a trend in this regard. Like most of the other people I talk to here, Jane does straight-up climate dynamics as one of her interests. One of her recent projects, for example, is about how mountains affect various aspects of the tropical climate. But Jane also has a strong interest in how climate affects people, and that leads her in some diverse and interdisciplinary directions. One thread of Jane's research involves extreme heat events, and in that work, she's collaborating with experts in public health and epidemiology to understand the human consequences of those events. In another thread, the one I know most about because she did it here and I've been involved in it, Jane is looking at tropical cyclone risk. Our group had been working for some time on tropical cyclone hazard, which means quantifying the probabilities of storms with given intensities and other properties. But Jane pushed our group's efforts into new territory by bringing in exposure and vulnerability, these being concepts that allow us to translate the hazard into risk proper by quantifying the actual damages the events can cause. This allows us to try to make our results useful for a wide range of purposes in disaster risk reduction and climate adaptation, and Jane is now working with several different kinds of groups and people, including the World Bank, Red Cross, and others, to do that. For those of us trained in geophysical fluid dynamics, like I was, quantifying climate impacts like this is messy work. We can't rely on the equations of physics. Often, we don't have the data we need, and we certainly don't have all the knowledge we need. There are too many different kinds of things one needs to know about. So we need to collaborate widely, and we need to know the user and understand what they're going to do with the results we produce. But this is what it takes to bring knowledge to action, as we say, and Jane is serious about doing that. Precisely because this work is so collaborative, interdisciplinary, and focused on objectives that are not purely academic, it's not entirely obvious that universities know how to reward it. So we talk for a while at the end about the potential risks a young academic like Jane might be taking by going in this direction. But this podcast, as you know if you've been listening to it, is not just about science. It's also about the diverse life experiences of scientists. And here too, Jane's story is especially interesting. In particular, we talk at great length about how she interrupted her college education to work for a year as a fashion model. That's right the job where you put on fancy clothes and pose and professional photographers take pictures of you, Jane did that. Not part of a typical scientist's training, right? So we talked about that for a long time. While Jane clearly doesn't want to be defined by this part of her background, and she doesn't usually bring it up in conversation, in my experience, it was clear that she wanted to get it off her chest and onto the record at least this once. And I just found it super interesting. 
so we didn't cut any of this material. So Jane Baldwin is broadening the scope of what an academic climate scientist does, and she's doing exciting work both in basic climate dynamics and in climate impacts. And she's thoughtful and open and a pleasure to talk to. So here's my conversation with Jane Baldwin. So thank you for being here. Thank you for doing this. And I'd like to start where we always do, which is your biography. Where are you from, Jane? I So I was born in New York City, actually. Oh. Um, and then my parents, after a year and a half, decided they wanted more space, I guess. My mom is really into gardening. And so they moved out to Connecticut. And that's where we lived for the next until I was seven, I guess. And then we actually moved to Tokyo, Japan for my dad's work. Wow. So what did your dad do? So he it's like an insurance executive kind of guy. I don't I don't think that's what he started out doing. I the, <laughs> the joke I tell about what he does is uh, when I was a kid, I you know, what he does is some complicated financy insurancy stuff. Mm -hmm. I obviously couldn't understand it. So he'd just tell me, Oh, I, I make money, Jane. And so then, so, you know, which as a kid is a relatively satisfying answer until it's bring your daughter to work day. And I go to his office and he's like, so, Jane, what do you think of my office? And this is the end of the day. I say, yeah, daddy, it's, it's pretty cool. But where are all the machines that make the coins in dollars? So. So anyway, that that's like so I know a little more about what he does now, but still like I'm I'm a little bit uh in the dark in some regards. But but he works on like health insurance things. Um, so so, wait, but so he never did the part with the natural disasters like where we know people. No, he he doesn't, which is I, I wish he did because that'd be fun It'd to be chat useful. with him yeah. about. It would be it would be useful. Yeah. He's always worked on uh health insurance stuff and yeah. anyway, uh he is I'd say fiscally conservative, socially liberal, um, uh -huh. which resulted in some funny things when Obamacare was coming out. He had a lot of like uh -huh. really exciting job opportunities and uh -huh. he felt like conflicted because he was like, this doesn't align with my politics, but this is a really great job opportunity. So he uh -huh. actually played like an instrumental role in some things related to Obamacare, I think, in the end through the company he was managing at the time and some of the products they created. Wait, but, but that was af that was after... Tokyo, right? Yeah, yeah. You're, after you Tokyo, you're not sorry, that young. I jumped for it. No, I know, I know. I'm just keeping track. You're not that young that you were seven no. when oh, Obama was no. elected. No, I'm yeah. not that young. <laughs> <laughs> so, 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 so why did we move to Tokyo? Uh, yeah. I'm getting off track. Uh, oh, so, okay. yeah. we moved to Tokyo because I think he was working for General Electric at the time, um, GE Capital, and oh. they sent him over there to manage some division. But what ended up happening is the there was a big recession at Japan in Japan two years after we arrived. It was supposed uh -huh. to be just like a short two-year position. And then GE acquired some big failing Japanese insurance company, but it meant we were in Japan for five years in total. And for three of those years, I mean, he was just working like a madman. I wow. like you know, I feel like Japanese standards of um, how many hours you're in the office are different in the U.S. On top of it, it was like a really intense job. So I remember yeah. he was pulling like all-nighters at the office. And Did he and have went. to go out drinking and all that like you hear about? I don't, I don't know. I think he like tried to change office culture around that. Um, but you'd have to, you'd have to ask him. I mean, I was seven to 12 years old at the time. So there's only so much, you know, I, I understood about what was going on. 
So did you go to regular Japanese school or did you go to like international school or something? No, I went to the American school in Japan, which mm. is um, an international school there. And the funny story about this, uh, which like kind of relates to my academic trajectory is I, I was a like awful student before we moved to Japan. Like uh, really? there were. Well, you were y so young that it, I don't know how much that. Yeah. Means, well, but. well, so the the point is that like that there were apparently multiple teacher parent teacher conferences where the teachers essentially to my parents were like, what are you doing to Jane? Because like she's not, <laughs> you know, she is really not tracking. And, you know, I have no idea of like what I was struggling with exactly. But I do know like when all the kids were like doing normal homework, I was constantly being taken out to like extra help for mm. math, for speech, for reading, mm. for writing mm. um and then what happened was we moved to japan and some of the things that were a problem in like normal american school were no longer a problem in this international school because there are kids who like literally barely spoke english who are from sweden or something mm. and just moved there so in a way they kind of laid off me a bit mm. and i don't know if it was a developmental thing or uh i had a teacher who taught me to ask questions which no one had ever told me to do before and that really helped me kind uh. of track with like what was going on in the classroom setting and i went from like literally in one year i went from being the worst not the worst worst but like one of the worst students in the class to the best student in the class and to this day i don't understand what happened yeah, so wow. spent a lot of time talking with therapists about that. but i mean i don't i don't have like a great memory for my early childhood but i do remember like feeling somewhat anxious and I do wonder if it was just I was anxious and so I couldn't really focus on what the teacher was saying because I yeah. didn't have confidence about what was going on so but I mean so did you have like you know normal Japanese friends or um or how would you have met them I guess if you were not in there yeah so there are actually a lot of um Japanese families that choose to send their kid to international school so they learn oh, English really well so my childhood best friend was Japanese but if you meet her, I like to joke, she seems more American than me because her mm. family was very invested in making mm. her like, I don't know, be be comfortable eventually going to college in the US. So, Which you know, she did. Yeah, she ended up going to Emory um, and she lives in San Francisco now. We're okay. still like in touch. Uh, she was at my wedding. And what's won. her name? You want to shout out? Yeah. Yeah. Yori Takano. Uh, <laughs> she works at Pinterest now. Actually, okay. she's like quite successful there. So I'm, right, anyway, okay. we've taken very different paths, but yeah, so she'd go to like summer camp in the U.S. and come back with all these like cool Abercrombie clothes and I'd be wearing mm. like whatever weird clothes my mom gave me. So anyway, mm. she that's why I say she was like more American than me at the time. Um, but we lived in this compound of houses that was mostly expats. Um, it was called the Kawasaki houses. Mm. And I think it was like definitely the most idyllic part of my childhood because we were living in Connecticut before and there there's it's not standard right now for parents to just let a kid like wander down the street to another house to play with another kid. But in this, even in suburban Connecticut. Yeah. I don't know. They were like, <laughs> I, I had like one friend who lived a few streets over and her parents would never let her like wander over to my house. And occasionally my parents would let me, I don't, I don't know. But in Tokyo, in this compound of houses, Tokyo's a really safe and B like it was this expat community so we could just like run from house to house and there was this amazing uh, garden. I actually wrote my college essay about like this garden behind our house and all the pretend games we'd play there because it was so kind of, yeah. I don't know, influential for me. 
but my sister and I didn't want to move back because we really enjoyed being, I, I mean, Tokyo was really interesting and we really liked our friend group there. But I think after five years, my dad was like, okay, this has been cool, but I, this has been very stressful work-wise as well. So let's mm -hmm. go back to the States. And did you get interested in science at a young age or did that come later? It's a good question. I'd say yes and no. So my dad studied physics in college. So so from a young age, I mean, I I was I wasn't a good student, but I was always very inquisitive. So I have a lot mm -hmm. of memories of saying, "Oh, Daddy, why is the sky blue? Why is this? Why is that?" And I I think he'd like actually give a good faith effort to to answer it mm -hmm. for me. So in that sense, I was interested in science. But I definitely, I don't know. I'm a little bit jealous of people who were like really into science from a young age and did all the science fairs and stuff because I didn't have that sense of like, oh, I'm going to be a scientist someday. It was more I was mm. just kind of curious about some physical phenomena. And it wasn't until, you know, college I was like, oh, actually, like there's a connection between the things I find vaguely interesting and mm. actual fields of study. So, yeah. Okay. So you come back to the U.S., you're 12, go back to Connecticut. Yeah, we go back to Connecticut. My parents are kind of scarred from what had happened previously when I was in the public school. So they ended up sending me to this kind of prep school in New Haven called Hopkins School. There's uh -huh. a lot of like Yale professors, kids who go there. So that yeah. was in a way my first introduction to academia. But did you live there or you had? No, you I we took from... like a bus on the Merritt Parkway. Uh, so I think my my secret to success in high school was I don't get car sick, so I could read and do homework <laughs> on the bus, and most kids couldn't. So that that may be my main <laughs> differentiator in high school. But yeah, so I we we take this like forty five minute bus ride every morning, and mm. then back in the afternoon. Okay, but. I feel like I, I should say briefly, because we spent a while talking about my dad's career, I want to mention something about my mom, because she is like yeah. a equally interesting and very different career. She yeah. worked as a documentary producer. Wow. Um, you know, I think when we moved to Japan, she like cut back the work she was doing a little bit, partially because it was hard to keep doing it in, in Japan. But prior to that, like when she was pregnant with me, she was actually working on this documentary about Jane Goodall that uh, uh ended up it was, i think it was nominated for like an oscar and won an emmy what's it called we'll put i don't it, remember we'll, i'll have we'll, to look it up we'll look it up and it's put the it in jane the goodall notes. one though <laughs> yeah yeah exactly but anyway there's there's like a funny story about this that i like to tell as my like fun fact about myself so my mom's like you know eight months pregnant with me or and something. wait are you the older one or are you the? i'm the older one okay. so this was her first baby she's living in new york at the time actually there are two parts to the story the first part is they were going to africa to do filming with jane goodall and my mom uh -huh. is very adventurous and was just assuming she'd go and then eventually the director or someone finds out that she's pregnant and was like carol you can't you can't go on this trip when we're going to the jungle when you're like, you know, X many months pregnant. She's like, really? I can't? Like, she she's very mm -hmm. like, mm -hmm. I'm I'm a bit of a worry war and so is my dad, but my mom's like really adventurous. And, and so then uh, the other funny story is later she's like, you know, eight months, nine months pregnant with me. And uh, she's chatting with Jane Goodall about something on set and Jane Goodall says, oh, you're pregnant as a girl or a boy. And my mom says it's a girl. 
And then Jane Goodall says, oh, what are you going to name her? And my mom says, oh, Jane. And Jane Goodall goes, oh, wow, I'm so, that's so sweet of you. I'm named after my grandmother. I am not named after Jane Goodall. Did but your my mom, mom didn't say that? No, my mom decided not to say that. So anyway, um, but yeah, yeah. So I, I think like, you know, my interest in maybe more technical quantitative stuff comes from my dad, but mm-hmm. my mom is is just like a, endlessly curious person. I think that's part of the reason why she became a documentary film producer because you're yeah, always yeah. working on these different topics and learning about different things. So. Yeah. So, so, but in high school, I guess you were a good student by now, although maybe not not a scientist in your own mind yet, but. Yeah, no, I, I became like a really good student and the high school I went to was a very competitive high school. And yeah. so I feel like how I identified myself in high school was you know, I'd work really hard and I'd do well, but there were kids in the high school who I viewed as like more like geniuses than than me. And and so I'd end up like, I think I graduated at the top of my class, but wow. like, so I have a close friend who was also like close to the top of my class, who's now a philosophy professor at NYU. And I think he's like absolutely brilliant. And there are all these other, there are a lot of people in my high school class that I just like, really admire intellectually i feel very lucky that i was friends with them in high school was there something else you were really into that you yes i'll describe later how i became more like fully formed as a social human being but Uh at the time in high school my life was about like school and ballet i was Uh like totally into ballet i spent you know i i mean i wasn't did you start that young or yeah i started when i was four and i did swimming and ballet and then when i was in 10th grade, it just became too ridiculous to do both. So I kind of decided to focus on ballet. Um, and I did some modern dance and stuff too. But I, I I wouldn't say I was like naturally very gifted at it. I'm quite tall and that's actually not great for ballet. You know, I, I was never going to be professional or anything. Right, so. Right. so I think the point at which I maybe began to think more seriously about science was like, as I said, my high school was very competitive or or not, I don't maybe competitive is not the right word. It's reputation. It's, it's like the school in Connecticut that gives the most homework and like really, like some parents don't like to send their kids there because they think it's too tough. Um, and there's pressure on the kids to get into fancy colleges yeah, and stuff. Yeah, yeah exactly. And, and to my parents' credit, I really don't think they put much pressure at all on me to get into a fancy college, but it's hard when you're in that environment not to like, yeah. you know, uh, breathe in some of that pressure. But I, I'd say the only thing in high school that made me think, oh, maybe like maybe science is more my thing is I felt like I really had to like work hard to do well in my classes that weren't science but science Mm. always came a little more naturally to me and Mm. i was the only girl in my ap physics bc class it was a pretty big class it was Mm -hmm. like i don't know for my high school it was like 25 people or something Mm -hmm. so it became a a point of pride then to do better than the guys in the class Mm because i just felt like you know I, i was sitting there diligently taking notes and there are a lot of guys in the class who were just like really naturally smart and acted mm-hmm. like they didn't have to work at all. Like one guy would like in the middle of class go out and buy a pastry and come back and like eat in front of the professor, you know? So <laughs> a- anyway, I think at that point, m- maybe that's when I started to think about majoring in science. But you didn't get any negative attitude from anybody other than just being 
the only girl? <laughs> I, I think I was lucky in that like I had teachers who were pretty encouraging. There were a couple of times at the beginning of high school where people would make some like snide remarks to me like, oh, Jane, I was really impressed by how good your presentation was. I didn't think you're, you know, yeah. I, I don't know. I, I never felt like I came off as this like naturally really smart person or something But nothing like that. that traumatized you. I mean, sometimes you hear women in science who've had been through educational situations like this that right. have, have been, uh, you know, no. substantially harmed by it in one way or another. No, no. I don't think being the only girl in my physics class, for example, was a problem. In a way, it made me feel like I should do this because there's a right. few No, not being the only one, this. but I mean, sometimes just the, you know, the boys behave badly. I mean, that's what I mean. So that didn't happen, sounds like. I mean, I've maybe blocked it out of my memory a little bit. There, there are definitely some situations where I'd be like, you know, trying to move the lab along and someone's like, you know, clearly not giving me the time of day because I'm a woman or something like that. I, yeah. I think my brain is pretty good at like, forgetting things that piss me uh -huh. off. So, okay. you know, I, I don't have a lot of distinct memories to relay from that period yeah. for better or for worse. Right. So. Okay, so top of the class. Good work, Jane. Yeah, somehow, I don't know. So college, or what happens next anyway? So I applied early action to Harvard and I was very fortunate to get in. And then I try, I had kind of like a relaxed summer, start at Harvard. Didn't really know what I was gonna study though. I had like a vague sense I was interested in environmental issues. I was interested that come in from? physics. That's a, that's a good question. So I think kind of from my my mother, she actually just started a community farm in my town recently. And it's uh -huh. just, uh, she, at one point in high school, she was volunteering at this wildlife rehabilitation center. So I started volunteering there a little bit. Uh -huh. So so not like, you know, some sp like very specific, like she works in environmental stuff. I just, right, that's right. part of her values, yeah. I think. Jane Goodall and yeah. And I think I felt this amorphous sense that I had this privileged upbringing, so I should do something with my career to give back. I shouldn't just, mm -hmm. you know, try to make a lot of money or, or something like that. And so I think at the beginning of college, I was looking for an issue or a problem that I thought was big enough the world was going to be facing that I could contribute in some small way to. And uh, I don't I don't actually remember if I, I didn't like take a class related to climate change early on in college, but I got involved in the environmental action committee at Harvard. Okay, wait a second. So what year is this? This is like two thousand and seven. Okay, yeah. I just to date it where we as where we are in the sort of evolution of the climate problem. Yeah, yeah. So there was um, inconvenient truth had been like recently. Right. So I think probably an inconvenient truth, even though I I don't even know if I like watched it carefully, but that was but in it, the like it, air. And, it, it, yeah, you know. it, it raised the yeah the, the visibility of the issue. Yeah. yeah, yeah, no, exactly. So the Environmental Action Committee at Harvard, funny thing is, do you know Karen McKinnon? Mm -hmm. So she actually was on the Environmental Action Committee the same time as me too. Mm, mm. And so I originally knew her as like a, more of an activist person so it's funny now she she's like a very serious scientist and a great yeah. friend you know yeah. um so it's kind of funny we both ended up going that route but she was one of the heads of the committee i think this is like an activist group yeah it's, yeah it's we a, did yeah. like 
clean energy. Uh, we tried to advocate for like clean energy. I, over the years, I like organized some various town halls. I actually got written up at one point in college for some protest on the Boston Common that I got written up next to James Hansen. He mm -hmm. was at the protest too, <laughs> but like it was scrubbed from my record because we had some group of lawyers that helped us. So, so anyway, I got like somewhat involved in activism. I'm yeah. pretty risk averse. So I wasn't, you know, I wasn't like chaining myself up to like anything. But, but some but, kids were? Well, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I guess on the scale of what people are doing, I was like, you know, in, involved. Like I was willing to go to this protest where we knew it was like the police were gonna write us up, for example. Mm -hmm. But I, I kind of realized I was not the most effective activist. Cause mm -hmm. if pe someone came up to me at a protest, just like a lay person was like, mm -hmm. hey, like, why do you guys care about this? I heard that, I, I mean, the classic example I've said like, too many times who knows if it's made up or just like an example i've come up in my head but like if someone were to ask me oh i hear like hurricanes are getting worse like is mm -hmm. that something we should really be worried about rather than just saying like yes they're getting worse like sign our petition i'd say oh that's interesting i don't know let's talk about that i wonder why that is so eventually mm -hmm. i decided i'd be more effective trying to learn as much as i could about the science and like i i felt like there were still a lot of questions that we didn't have as good answers to on the science side. I wanted to help yeah, with that. That's that's uh, discovering your identity as an academic. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I guess so, yeah. And then I started majoring in, because I was involved in the environmental stuff, I actually initially declared a major called environmental science and public policy, uh -huh. um, which was a highly interdisciplinary major. And I was gonna do it. This is reflective of like, I have a lot of interests and I sometimes have trouble editing my interest. Mm -hmm. I was gonna do it in concert with East Asian studies mm -hmm. because I was saying Chinese at the time. I thought that was And cool. I guess you already knew Japanese? I spoke some Japanese, but not like yeah, a okay. crazy amount of Japanese. Mm -hmm. And by the time I was in college, my Chinese ability was much better than my Japanese mm -hmm. ability because I had studied in, in high school. Mm. So anyway, I declared this like double major and I had some vague idea of China has lots of like environmental problems. Maybe I can like help right. do something there. Yeah. Quickly realized that this was like annoyingly broad, like I wasn't going to get any depth. And mm. at the time I happened to take this like basic atmospheric and ocean circulation class. That was a major requirement actually. From whom? Michael uh, McElroy, oh, okay. McElroy. Yeah. the student reviews of the class were pretty mixed, but I found it fascinating. And mm. it's kind of funny when you take a class where most of the people are like, this sucks. And yeah. you're like, this is amazing. Like, right. so that's a lot of what you bring to it, I guess. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> I don't know. I, I like just I thought people who are like perhaps more hardcore dynamicists than me might react to this. But I, I think from doing ballet, like when you're doing ballet, practicing pirouettes over and over again, you're thinking mm -hmm. a lot about sort of like a physical problem. It's just like manifesting with your body rather than your, mm -hmm. your brain. And so something about learning about the Coriolis force and how that factors into different dynamics, it just felt right. like fun for my brain to think about. We so. always explain the Coriolis force and angular momentum with the skater spinning Exactly, around. yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, so I took that class, decided to switch my major to earth and planetary science. Uh -huh. Did you like do research or did you get really into the, the field at this time? Um, yeah, so I, again, I had this like strong interest in this East Asian studies stuff. So I spent a summer in China. Uh -huh. I spent a summer as a working on a ranch in Colorado because I thought it would be fun. And mm. I often, when I'm talking Was to- Was it fun? 
Yeah, it was amazing. <laughs> okay. Like, you know, this was after my freshman year and like, I, I kind of feel bad that in when I talk to most undergrads now, I feel like they feel like every summer has to be an internship or research experience or something directly related to their and career. Sometimes their parents feel that way. Oh, yeah, I'm totally sure of that. And then so I, I was very grateful. I got to have this kind of fun summer. I led like trail rides in the morning and afternoon for for kids, which mm. like it was this luxury guest ranch, mm. which is a funny place to work. But the setting was beautiful mm. and like. In retrospect, it seems absurd that I was like taking six-year-olds out on horseback, like into the mountains. The liability there just seems like crazy now that I think about mm, it too much. People probably sign something. These horses <laughs> also are like pretty chill, so like there there wasn't much bad that happened. So, yeah, so that was really fun. There's a a strange part of my trajectory I should get into that begins here too, which is that I, when I was 15, I was in New York with my godmother at a diner Uh and this like, I walked to the bathroom. I've always been like very tall and skinny. And this guy comes up to me and gives me his card and says, hey, like I work for this modeling agency. You should come talk to us. Uh And I'm 15, I have braces. I tell my godmother, Ew, this guy's like creepy. Like, and she's like, oh, yeah, yeah, Jane, don't worry about it. Then she looks at the card and it's Elite, which is like one of the best modeling agencies in the world. Like, it's this really and she knew that. big deal. And she knew that. So she's like, well, maybe you should talk to him. I don't know, you know? And so I end up like having a meeting with them. I end up doing what's called a test shoot. And that's like you do a shoot with a photographer so an agency can see how you look on camera. Uh And this was after I got my braces off. And they're like, I didn't end up signing a contract and um, I was leaving for college. I'm like, "Uh, like, whatever, screw screw this. I I care about school, I don't wanna be a model. But- You had you ever had any interest in anything like that? No, yeah. totally. I mean, I don't like like this. Jane in high school again cared about ballet and like her schoolwork and you know her well, friends. and modeling liked. aren't obviously incompatible to a non that, to that's a true. to a person on the street, but that that's true. That's true. But like, I don't know. I I definitely wasn't fashion. Right. I. You know, I think I wore New Balance sneakers every day in high school because like, you know, I was really interested in the ballet thing again. And so you want to wear the thing that supports your foot the most, Uh not the thing that's the most stylish. Yeah. Anyway, I I did not care about fashion in in summary. And so it was just purely you just looked like the type that they... So I'll, I'll try not to spend the next hour ranting about the fashion industry, but like. No, I, I, I mean, I knew this about you and I wanted to talk about it. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I, I mean, I think it's, I, you know, I've talked to some people in science about this period in my life. I try not to talk about it too much because mm-hmm. I've worried over the years, oh, I won't seem like a serious scientist. Of but, course. You know, now I'm a assistant professor. I, Let's go for it. <laughs> serious enough. <laughs> so, so for high fashion modeling, yeah, you don't want to have facial features that are like too, I don't know, sometimes they like weird, but like, you know, boring or something. But it is really primarily you need to be X tall and your hips need to be X small. And there is a very small percentage of the population mm. that actually fits those measurements. Mm-hmm. And the thing is that the period of time in your life you can work like competitively as a model is, you know, really from the age of like, 
maybe 17 to 25 or something. Mm -hmm. And then if you really make it big, you can continue to make money after that. But as a result, they have to like start scouting girls when they're around the age that I was scouted, like 15 Mm -hmm. and they're doing some projection of, oh, she Mm -hmm. looks like this now, she'll probably get this tall or something. Mm So it's like a body dimensions thing and like just weird genetics. And so I didn't get offered a contract from Elite in the end. They had another girl who looked like me. And I could have, you know, once you've been scouted for Elite, you could talk to a bunch of agencies and probably find someone who would sign you. Mm -hmm. But I really wasn't interested in it Mm. at that time. And then at the end of my freshman year, I'm like pretty young for my grade. And I'm sort of feeling just a little, again, I went to this very competitive high school where I was working all the time. My freshman year of college, you know, I was working a lot too. And then I do this summer in Colorado and I kind of realize I want to like take some time just to not do school. Mm-hmm. And so then the modeling thing starts to become interesting because it's like, oh, it would be a way to travel, mm-hmm. totally different than school. Mm-hmm. It would, you know, force me to confront a lot of social anxieties I have, which mm-hmm. I, I mean, at the time, I, I just, there are so many people I just was too intimidated to talk to because I viewed them as like popular kids and I was not, I was a nerd, you know? Mm-hmm. So for those reasons, I decided to do it. But the one thing I forgot to say, which is like one of the weirdest parts of this story is at the end of my freshman year, I was actually recruited to be on America's Next Top Model, wow. um, that like TV show. I've heard of it. I and never I, watched it, but... Yeah. um, Because you were talking to these agencies or, I mean, totally independently? No. So Harvard has this internal fashion show called Eleganza, which is Uh like actually like, you know, among the kids at Harvard, kind of all the cool, like cool kids. So I was definitely not like a cool kid. But my roommate really wanted to audition. Uh And because of dance, I'm very comfortable doing auditions. So I was like, "I'll, I'll come with you and do the audition. So I do it really just to support her. Mm. And the next day I get this email from them and they're like, we don't want you to be in our crappy little Harvard fashion show, but we've been re- contacted by a scout from America's Next Top Model and we think you'd be great for that. Wow. They wanna have someone, They, I think they had had someone from Princeton at that point and they kind of mm-hmm. like this like, have a smart Ivy League girl who's also right. a beautiful like angle or something. So I talked to the scout She's like, yeah, you seem great. Like, come to our casting in Boston. So I like yeah. skip. I was I was a goody two shoes with classes, but I like skipped classes that day. Go yeah. to this audition. The room starts with a hundred people, and eventually they have all these rounds, and it gets narrowed down to eight. Uh-huh. And each eight of us had like some weird life story, you know. So yeah. they were definitely selecting for the story. Uh-huh. So I did a fifteen minute filmed interview. I don't remember much of, I remember demonstrating my square dancing ability at at some point. Uh So, uh, and then it gets sent to Tyra Banks and then it kind of disappears in a black hole. I don't hear anything for a month. And then I get this call out of the blue during Harvard finals review period. And they're Mm -hmm. like, hey, like I'm, you know, Kate from America's Next Top Model. We Uh really want you to be on the show. We're sending you 300 pages of contracts that you need to get back to us by (laughs) Thursday. And you need to be in LA by like next Wednesday or something like that. And so this is finals period. And I'm under an NDA with them. So the only people I can talk to are my parents and my boyfriend at the time. You couldn't tell Harvard this is why I'm skipping my exams? No, so I go to my physics professor, Jeez. who's this really nice guy, but like 
He's like a physics did professor. You, but did you did you know instantly that you wanted to do it, or did you torment yourself for about? I mean, was it a struggle to decide whether to do this or not? Uh, well, I'll I'll describe that. It was a it was a struggle, and the end of the story is I decide not to do it. Okay. But what happened was I go talk to my physics professor, and I'm like, hey, I have this thing. I like might have to miss my final exam. Can I reschedule? Would that be a problem? But I couldn't tell him what it was, so I'm just like uh, some like personal thing, you know. And he's like, oh, I don't uh, maybe I I don't know. I think you should talk to like your dean or something. So I talked to my Harvard, they assign you these like mentor people called proctors. So I talked uh -huh. to my proctor and I explain it. And she's like, let me go talk to the dean. She talks to the dean, dean gets back and says, Harvard has had instances of students who have trained for the Olympics and the Olympic mm -hmm. trials or something conflicts with their exam and they have to choose between passing the class or trying out for the Olympics. Mm -hmm. So I'm like, all right, well, tough in other words, this, yeah, like, so <laughs> I, I could fail this class and you know, it wouldn't, it would be bad, but what no, rest of my GPA was really good. Maybe it would be okay. So then, then I'm like, but there is this crazy contract, like what's really in mm. there. So my dad had some friend of a friend that was an entertainment lawyer who mm. looks at it and gets back to us and says like, you know, I would never advise a client to sign this contract. In reality TV, people sign contracts like this all the time mm. because they're so desperate to become famous. So if you're mm. desperate to become famous, maybe this makes sense, but otherwise you like really shouldn't sign this What's contract. What's the most, what, what makes it so? Uh... So you sign away your life story to Tyra Banks. So in oh. perpetuity, let's say, you know, I, I become a climate scientist like I am now. Tyra he, could sue me right now for doing this. Yeah, yeah, maybe. <laughs> or you, <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's actually true. This is one of the first <laughs> things I've done that maybe would fall under this. Or like photos of me, you know. Tough Tyra. I mean, Tyra Banks yeah, for Jane's yeah, story. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's funny. Because like at the time, I'm like, well, maybe I'll end up being cool enough that I have a life story anyone cares about. But probably not, you know. I, I, um, this is big for me. I, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but so I had to sign this and then my parents and boyfriend at the time would have to sign more like temporary life story contracts. So like mm. for a number of years, mm. just in case they did like a spinoff or something, you know, mm -hmm. and then the circumstances when the show was filming, I, I wouldn't be able to tell anyone and I'd only be able to be in contact with, again, my parents and the my boyfriend. Right. The whole but you'd summer. probably have a modeling career for from then on, right? I'll, I'll get to that oh, in a okay. moment. So my dad stages an intervention. He drives up <laughs> to Boston. We have this coffee and he's like, Jane, like, honey, like, I, I just, I, I'm not sure you should do this. And I'm like, and I'm like still on the fence. And the thing that convinced me not to do it is like all of this other stuff that would be a pain. Also, I'm not always cool as a cucumber. And so I think on a show like that, if I got stressed or something, then like there's just footage on the internet of me like getting angry or something like that. I don't know, maybe there are people out there who are like very confident in their ability to like someone says something mean to them and they're just like, screw you, I'm going to keep eating my toast. I, I feel like I could get like pissed off at someone or uh -huh. something and then it would be on the internet forever. Has that happened? I mean, has that happened where somebody's on America's Top Model and they get in that kind of... That's what reality TV is all about. It's I, nev I never watched it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, it's good. But yeah, I, no, I no. honestly didn't really even know that 
what America's Top Model. I mean, I know it's obviously a show about models, but I didn't I don't know. Yeah, so they get all these like women to like live in a house together and then they're like oh, do it's all one these of those like those things. Yeah, and they do I sort all of these thought it was a fashion show or something. No, 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 no. <laughs> it's like they put them in a house and then they like have every day they have some different photo shoot and then depending on how you do in the photo shoot you oh. stay in the show or you leave oh, so you're supposed to get angry at them you're supposed <laughs> to get angry they want you to they like and i've heard stories. i don't know if they're true but but i've heard stories they'll like you know try to like not put too much food in the house so people are hangry and like you know <laughs> right. stuff like that so i have a friend actually who's a reality tv editor now and he's told me like look I make the people on the shows look however the producers want to look. So you could be perfectly pleasant the whole show, and I could make you look like the villain if that's what the producers wanted. So anyway, it, it didn't seem worth it to me. I wasn't really interested in being famous. So I say no. And then that summer, I'm working at this ranch in Colorado. I'm pretty bored. And so I'm like, man, like maybe it'd be fun to like actually work as a model, like have an agent, not just be on this reality show. And right. I start networking, and I find this woman most agents laugh you out of the room if you say like, oh, I'm a student at Harvard. Like, and they're like, ha, like you can't be a college student and be a model. But I found this one agent who was a good agent and was also like empathetic about that I cared about finishing my college degree. And so yeah. I started working with her yeah. basically. What was the idea you wanted to do it while staying in school or you're gonna take a break from school and do it? So originally I wasn't sure. Um, I just kind of was like, apparently I could be competitive at doing this and like there's a limited age window. So if I don't do it now, I'm not going to be able to do this. Like right. why not pursue it? Um, but I didn't have a sense of whether I'd, you know, I kind of thought, Oh, maybe I can like be in school and then like, you know, take the train down to New York periodically. Cause like mm -hmm. Boston, there's not really much fashion stuff happening in Boston. What ended up happening was, and this is where like fashion becomes like this lark to like something that was both a really cool thing I did and something I like have some negative feelings towards as well. Yeah. So to to be a competitive runway model, you have to be really thin. And yeah. I, I was, everyone my whole life was like, oh, you're naturally like really skinny. Do you eat food? You know, is your mother feeding you? But when I signed this contract with my agent, you what you do is you send Polaroids, which are like photos uh -huh. of yourself, not like taken by a photographer. They're just like, this is what my body looks like. And you uh -huh. take measurements. And they're legally not allowed to say like, you weigh this, you should lose X many pounds. But what uh -huh. they can say is your body measurements are X, Y, and Z. Most competitive runway models measurements are ABC. So right. it's kind of like implied you got to get your measurements in line with those. Right. And so. And, and that, that meant that you weren't thin enough. It meant that I wasn't thin enough. Yeah. And so. In, it, in your specific case, in other words, not just generically, but like. Right. In my, in my like, specific like, case. Jane, you are. <laughs> yeah. Like you can get thin enough. We wouldn't right. have recruited you if we didn't think you had the bone structure to do this, but you gotta, you gotta lose some weight. Yeah. And like. At the time, again, like by all external perspectives, I'm very thin already. Yeah. But so I I had never been someone who had dieted before. But, you know, I, I guess I'll I'll do this. So at first it was like relatively healthy. It was like, oh, I'll like stop mm -hmm. drinking juice and like not eat dessert. And, you know, right. as a freshman with a dining hall of like soft serve accessible to you, <laughs> like, you know, I had maybe gained a little bit of weight my first year. But then it took maybe like, a year to get my measurements to a point where they were like 
basically they're like your body measurements are fine you still have too much muscle tone from ballet but will like really oh yeah my calves were my big problem point i wow. had because like in ballet you're always like is on this your toes. still true now because i feel like yeah. <laughs> women being like who are athletic and stuff and have muscles like is more normal like on in, with actors and stuff. Yeah. But it's still true that you can't have like I mean it's not like ballet dancers are some sort of huge I mean ballet dancers are pretty thin. Yeah, yeah. I mean they have muscle yeah. but the, you know. Yeah, so I, I don't know. I'm not in the fashion industry right now. What my thoughts are on this is I feel like what has happened since I was modeling is there is more space in the industry for a greater diversity of body types. Uh -huh. But if you are my body type, right. you still fall into this category where they want you as thin as possible. Right. So now it's not so much like, oh, you can just be how you are. I think it's probably based on what I've seen. Like if you're thin, you're as thin as possible. If you're a strong woman, you're as strong as possible. If you're a curvy woman, you're as curvy as possible. See, you know. And so I'm not really sure that there's a space in the industry for like, this is just my normal body type, okay. um, but but that's like I don't know. Okay, so just so I just so I make sure I know where we are. So you're in second year of college. You kind of have some arrangement with this agency where they're like grooming you, and you're like losing weight, and that, yes. while you're in school, but while you're not, I'm in but school. you're not like they're not taking pictures of you yet. No, not okay. yet. We're basically just seeing if I can get my measurements in line that I can then potentially go do some modeling, but I'm like taking classes and you know, yeah. just in college. And so then after about a year and a half of this, sometime during my junior year, I reach a point where I'm like, I am so damn sick of dieting. Like <laughs> either I'm just gonna do this or I'm not, I have yeah. to stop. So I talked to my agent and this is where the science and the fashion <laughs> begin to intertwine in this funny way. So. Yeah. It was it was actually the summer after my junior year, and I got this like research fellowship thing to work with Peter Hybers in this program at Harvard called uh -huh. Prize, which is this great program where they like put all these students doing summer research who are undergrads and living community together. Oh, and wow. I was working on like in Cambridge. Yeah, yeah, in yeah. Cambridge. I was working on mountain glacier change since the last glacial maximum, mm -hmm. and like Peter is a fantastic advisor. And I data or their models. Or Mo uh, the, the joke, of course, is that we're going to say the word model with oh, multiple yeah. different meanings. Yep. I'm sure you're tired <laughs> of this already, but we're going to have to do it. <laughs> I have a joke about this on my Twitter, actually. But uh, yeah, I'm sure there's many jokes. One could, yeah, yeah. yeah. They're all the same so, joke. So in the end. <laughs> computational models. Uh, we basically, if you look at equilibrium lines, which are essentially a proxy for the extent of the glacier since the last glacial maximum, ones that are at like the last ice age, ones that are at lower elevation have risen more than ones at higher elevation, which is mm -hmm. confusing given that, you know, if you factor mm -hmm. in how the lapse rate should change, you'd expect that higher elevations would be seeing a greater temperature change as a result, a greater change in these right, equilibrium right. lines. And, and by the way, and this was also the same thing was issue in the modern radio sound measurements, right? Where the upper level warming right. wasn't as much as it was supposed to be. And Exactly. So, so this is why I think Peter was interested in this thing because yeah, he was yeah. like, yeah, this is this little mountain glacier thing, but I think this could help understand this larger problem, yeah. basically. Um, and so he he basically gave me this data set of mountain glacier ELAs and was like, can you figure out a reason why this change has happened the way? Is there some physically plausible mechanism well, for why we've seen this? A, 
Um, that was how it was framed. That's a pretty solid problem to give an undergrad. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so so I talked to him and like someone else at the time when I was looking for a research position, and he like really gave me a problem I could dig into versus the yeah. other person was like, oh, we have this project, you can like help with something in it. Right. So I was really attracted to this thing that like could kind of be mine that I could try to solve. Yeah, but that kind of, I mean, the reason we often break it down to a to a more bite-sized thing is that a lot of people will kind of freeze when given the problem of that, you know, don't know where to start when, yeah. given, a, when given a problem that's that, kind of right open-ended or you know yeah yeah that, that doesn't come with precise guidance as to how to do it well or, so, or maybe he did give you uh peter didn't have and like immediate idea the other ridiculous part of the story when i started working with peter and now we're like going a different direction was that's okay literally the day no no i i had met with him once had decided to start doing some research with him and the next time i'm meeting with him all his students come into his office with a pie and they're like, congratulations, Peter, this is amazing. He had won the MacArthur Fellowship. Oh, uh, yeah, I remember when day. that happened, yeah. Yeah, so anyway, one of his students had found this like simplified model of orographic precipitation. It was like uh -huh. a simple upslope model, so just uh, rainfall on a mountain. Uh -huh. And uh, it had some interesting, like nonlinear characteristics. And typically, mountain glacier equilibrium lines are modeled with just like a same precipitation rate up the whole height of the mountain. We thought maybe merging this orographic precipitation model, we could do something interesting. So, anyway, I spent that summer basically playing around with these toy models and cleaning up the data. Yeah. And it was a fun project because it wasn't you know, the models were pretty simplified, so you could try all these different hypotheses. You know, it wasn't yeah. this crazy computational load. But but anyway, so Peter was a great advisor. And I think I did a like good enough job on the project, but I was like pretty distracted because I'm dealing right. with these <laughs> like emails from my agent trying to set me up shoots. Like right. so by the end of the summer, I'm like, this is just ridiculous. Like I can't <laughs> keep like being an aspiring fashion model and a scientist at the same time. Mm. Like, I got to do something. So again, I'm sick of dieting. So I call up my agent. I'm like, look, either I'm going to do this now, I'm just stopping. And so if I take a year off Harvard, could you work with that? Could you like send me places? I like really mm -hmm. give this a mm -hmm. go. And she's like, yeah, yeah, sure. I can definitely work with that. I think your measurements are at a point now we can do that. So I'm like, okay, cool. So I, you know, you literally just send like an email to someone at Harvard saying I'm taking a year off. They have a very easy right, leave right, of absence right. policy. You just don't want to do it right before finals. But if you yeah, do yeah, it at yeah. the right time, exactly. it's okay. If you do it during the summer, it's fine. <laughs> and then I tell Peter, I'm like, so like, I'm taking time off to do that. I'm like really nervous to tell, tell Peter about this. But you, you could tell people now. This is not America's yeah, yeah, yeah. Model. This is not America's <laughs> Next Top Model. This is just like Jane has an agent and is right, going right, to go like right. be a model. So I tell Peter and... I still to this day remember he wrote me this like very kind email reply or I forget if he said this in person or if this was via email but he's like you know he went to West Point and was in the military for a while. Oh I didn't know that. Yeah yeah and so he's like you know Jane like after college I drove tanks around the military and it really helped me appreciate that what I'm doing now is the right thing for me uh -huh. so I think this is a great idea <laughs> that you're doing this and then like made some joke about models and modeling which now everyone does so 
Right. But he was the original. So I mean, so there's something I kind of, I I I, I want to ask you about this. That's sort of I think like the obvious question. But I and I've been waiting. Maybe this is the right moment to ask yeah. it before you tell me about your experience like, yeah, yeah, doing yeah, yeah. this. Yeah. Because this is the moment where you're making a decision, right? right? I'm very interested in people's stories, like the decision point yeah, and what of they're course. thinking. Yeah. So, just tell me about your thought process of like, okay. Like what you're telling me now about how the system works, presumably you understood this then. Like, okay, I'm tall and I'm thin. I right. look this way. It's just genetic, but they like me right. for that, you know. And at the same time, you know, here I am at Harvard, like studying right. climate science, <laughs> so I can make the world a better place, you know, both in the sense of, you know, how do I want to spend my life, but also, you know, how do I fit into the world? You know, do you want to make a living? exploiting the fact that we have a sort of a patriarchal system that values, you know, your physical appearance. Like, do you want right, to do right, that right. as opposed to just tell me about like your your thought process here and what how much conflict there was like then or now or how you, you know, see this? I'm I'm smiling because you probably haven't been following this. I, I in my spare time still follow a fair amount of like fashion industry stuff like in the news just you know, because I used to be part of it. Uh -huh. And Emily Ratajkowski, who's a super famous model, uh -huh. uh, she recently came out with this book and the book is all about like her conflict with having this like basically being a really successful model but also feeling conflicted about basically she's making money off of this patriarchal system um, so i can understand that any intelligent model could feel that way but like but you, it's you, like but you, weird for me especially. Well, and, and i should yeah. i should add like the, the anecdote is which you know this summer you got married mm -hmm. you know i was at your wedding thank you for having me it was a beautiful your yeah, godmother, yeah. Your godmother, we should probably say her name. Uh, Ola Bumi Amigli Bumi. Yeah. So yeah. she was the um, officiated at your wedding. Gave yeah, a beautiful yeah. speech about you and your husband Eric, and she said that like before you met, you know, Eric told his mom, "I don't have high standards. <laughs> I just want to model with a PhD." The joke being, of course, that this combination doesn't happen very often, yeah, yeah, yeah. and of course <laughs> yeah, that you yeah. are one, and you know. But I'm just saying, any model could have the concern you just described. But in right. your case, you've clearly had yeah. gone a different direction and were even then going in a different direction. So I just, you know, I just wanted to hear how you thought about this and to what yeah. extent it bothered you or didn't, or, I mean, I could think of reasons why you could say, this is fine. You know, this is what I want to do now, or maybe I'll right. want to do it for a longer time, or maybe I won't, you know, I could think of any number of ways you could think about it. And I want right. to hear what it actually was. Yeah, no, that's a great question. So I think the main reason I wanted to do it is there is a side of me that you know, I partially get from my mom probably that has like adventurous streak. And this was mm. like some crazy adventure I could do. It's totally different than yeah. stuff I'd done before. Right. It was a way to travel because that's what you do as a, which I'll get into in a second, as yeah. a yeah. game model, you travel all over the world. So I think that was the part that was appealing about mm. it. The other thing is that the kind of modeling I'm like cut out for, it's not like smiley commercial stuff, definitely not like Playboy type stuff. It's like pretty weird high fashion stuff. It's mm -hmm, like things mm -hmm. where you're wearing these like mm -hmm. crazy clothes that are like, are they even clothes or are they like art or something <laughs> right. like that, right? <laughs> yeah. And so at this time I was really, in, I haven't talked about this yet, but I got super into modern dance in college. Uh -huh, uh -huh. And so I think like high fashion felt like a little closer to modern dance. Like I was never going to be a professional modern dancer. <laughs> In that dancer. most people don't really get either one, but, right, but it helps right. to be tall and thin. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly, yeah, yeah. So I think like in a way it wasn't like at the time the like patriarchal thing didn't weigh on me like as much I think because it uh -huh. felt a little like a little more like an artistic thing that might be obvious from the outside. Right, um, right, not right. that, you know, it's still, it's like fashion modeling. Right, it's based on right. your appearance, you know, whatever. But 
the main thing I, I worried about, if I worried about something, was that I'd go do this and my brain would like atrophy. And then I'd come <laughs> back and like, if, if I did come back to college, which was kind of the agreement with my parents. Like, cause think about this from my parents' perspective. Like you have right. a daughter who is at Harvard, who's doing well, and she's leaving it to be a fashion model. You know, right. that like a lot of my friends asked me like, how did your, were your parents okay with that? And they- I mean, on the other hand, you had an actual job. I mean, some people leave to go play in a, you know, a punk band and they're, yeah, you know, they don't have <laughs> any, any, any uh... Yeah, yeah, that's one perspective on it. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I mean, they were, they were like pretty tolerant, I would say, uh, but, I mean, I think I kind of reconciled this by having a clear plan in my head. So it was uh -huh, like a risky uh -huh. thing, but I'm a risk averse person. So uh -huh. I was sort of, I was like, okay, I'll do this for a year. If it's going great, like I'm about to make like some crazy amount of money, maybe uh -huh. I'll stick with it. Cause you know, uh -huh. I don't know if you make money, you can do other stuff later on. Uh -huh. If it's like going okay, then I'll just go back to college and finish college and, uh -huh. you know, continue on. So it sort of felt like I could do a trial of this and see how it went. And then, I don't know, like, I guess as a dancer, I didn't feel that weird about, like, people taking photos of me because I had spent my whole life, like, doing these dance right, performances right. where people are looking at at you. So, But you all, it all sounds like you also, your plan was such that you didn't really feel like you were making a long-term choice necessarily. No, I did not So it's like, this way. is a fun thing I can do. This opportunity fell on me. And like, I strategically did it during college because I was worried if I graduated and did it, then I'd like yeah. kind of fall off the radar. But like having to come back and finish college, I right, thought right. would kind of ground me a little bit. Yeah. But yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I end up like the summary of the year is the first place I work is in Athens. I'm there for two months, like uh -huh. doing a bunch of photo shoots. Then I was in Milan for like six weeks or two months or so around Milan Fashion Week and then two months in Tokyo uh -huh. and then back in New York for the summer. And I have, I mean, that that could be like a whole other interview talking about what that was like. But like the, the good thing in each place was that again, when I was on a shoot, I really enjoyed it. I mean, because yeah. if it's a good photographer, it's like a fun collaborative process and they'd like really appreciated the fact that I had this dance background, like uh -huh, uh -huh. had a bit of a brain so I could like get their vision and uh -huh, execute it. Uh -huh. And so that's like a really, what what's interesting about it is like, because again, it's this very specific body type, like people often ask me, oh, like models are stupid, right? Like, wasn't mm. that really hard? Cause you're, you know, have a like PhD now. So you're clearly not a dummy. And uh, the reality is it's such a, particular body type that I found, at least starting out, the girls kind of represent just the spectrum of like intelligence that exists in the broader population. Right, like, right. Some were not very intelligent and some were really intelligent. I think the yeah. thing that's different is your success in that industry correlates barely at all with your intelligence, basically. Right, and I've it's not seen. particularly encouraged. You know, you're... you're no. <laughs> well, actually, this is funny. So a lot of my time was spent going to castings right this year and like all the markets I worked in, except for Tokyo, I was given the explicit instructions not to say I was a student at Harvard. Uh -huh. But in Tokyo, people are so into like brand name stuff that like they'd like really get a kick out of me saying I was a student at Harvard. Did being in Tokyo, I mean, you yeah. know, did you feel I'm back now, you know, or did you reconnect yeah. in, with your past in some yeah. meaningful way? Yeah, I, I, it was really fun being there from the perspective that I kind of knew the place and I knew some people there. Honestly, at that point, and this is the part that's like kind of sad about the year is like with each contract I got, 
they were like, great, you're this weight. Like, you can continue to lose weight over the course of this. <laughs> so they wouldn't be like, okay, this is the thinnest she's ever been. They'd be like, oh, like, great. Like, now we can work from here. They'd think that was like my baseline, basically. Uh. And so by the time I got to Tokyo, I, I, the contract I got with the agency in Tokyo was like at the time the best agency in Tokyo for women's fashion modeling. Uh-huh. I had good agencies, but I wasn't quite at the stature where mm-hmm. like the absolute top agencies would be hiring me. But what mm-hmm. happened was there was the Fukushima Daiichi uh, nuclear power plant thing. Oh, you were there for that? I wasn't there for that. Oh. But what happened was that happened and all these like, you know, Tokyo really likes young cutesy girls and all these uh-huh. girls who were like teenagers, their moms were like, no way in hell you're going to Tokyo now. Uh-huh. And I had lived there before. And so my agent saw an opportunity and was like, I know Jane's 21, which is like a grandma in modeling terms, but <laughs> like, but like, you know, she'd be comfortable going to Japan. So it was not, I don't remember exactly how long after, but it was kind of shortly after. And when I arrived, there were still tremors from that earthquake uh, uh-huh. that you'd feel. So, but because I got this contract, my agent was like, look, like, Tote, this is a really good agency. You should uh-huh. be like absolutely as thin as possible. Uh-huh. So I like, you know, this is just getting like progressively crazy. And I wasn't, I wasn't like not eating at all, but you know, relative to the amount I'm like exercising, it's just like not really sustainable. Uh-huh. And so I get to Tokyo and the contract. This is, I feel like there's like a side of the story, which is like the crazy things you can put in legal contracts in Uh some countries. Says, your body measurements are this. If any of these increase two centimeters, you will be sent home with no pay. Jeez. Um, And Tokyo has like set pay contracts. So they, they basically have this thing where it's like, you'll go for two months and regardless of how much they say, no matter what, you'll make X amount of money basically. And so they take this bet but the way they get around it if you're not performing well is they have these like ridiculous lines about your measurements and stuff Jeez. like that. So basically Tokyo at first I'm not performing great because again mm. I'm like not the most typical look for a model in Tokyo. And so the agency starts measuring me every Monday and mm. they were definitely just hoping I'd gain some weight and they could send me home. Yeah. So then like the type A part of my personality that's like competitive is like <laughs> fuck no you're not sending me home with no pay. So so then like I'd say the weight loss thing got like kind of unhealthy. But so like good and bad parts of the story. They're like all these young girls who are models who are like really immature and like the guys who in Tokyo they drive you around to castings because most Western girls can't read the signs and I kind of became friends with the drivers and they liked me because I'd kind of help manage some of the stuff with the younger girls Uh so they started talking me up at castings Uh and then I booked a couple good jobs and those photographers liked me and kind of snowballed and Uh so by the time I left Tokyo I was actually doing great I like booked this big TV ad that I wish I could find on YouTube because it's hysterical, but like, you uh, know, stuff like that. But but yeah. nonetheless, you decided to go back to school. But then I do decide to go back to school. Yeah, I so I did New York Fashion Week and like I, I was doing as well as could be expected for a model in their first year, but I realized it would probably take a couple more years of development, quote unquote, like mm-hmm. before I was making a lot of money. So mm-hmm. I decided and I was sick of losing weight. Basically, it was just yeah. like I felt like it was difficult to think like eating that little. Yeah. So what happened was 
like, and I definitely didn't write this in my grad school statements because at the time I just didn't want to talk about this. But I became very attracted to academia because I'm like, oh, this is a job where they care about your thoughts and do not care at all about what you look like. Right. Which, since some people have snidely said, like, well, they do kind of subconsciously care about what you look like well, or something. But there's, but, but like, I mean, come, you know, gradations. Come, come look at us. And like, you <laughs> yeah. know, the joke about the model with a PhD is funny for a reason. I mean, not that we're yeah. worse looking than anybody else. No. We certainly don't. We're not the most obsessed with our own appearance. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the classic, you know, the stereotype of a scientist is a man, you know, a white man who is unkempt and like right. kind of smells bad from whatever being right. in a lab all night or something. Right, right, right. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Has like some holes in their shirt. Maybe their glasses are broken. Like, I mean, this is unfair stereotype, but like all stereotypes, there's a tiny bit of truth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, I go back to, to school and like, I'm kind of happy to be back. There's some part of the transition was a little bit difficult, but I went back to the Glacier Project, do my mm -hmm, senior thesis mm -hmm. with Peter goes pretty well. I applied to grad school. Well, okay, so but grad school, at what point is this a decision that you make? I mean, how, when did you decide that this was a thing you wanted to do? I think it was maybe October when I get back. So But I, I mean, was this so I'm I'm interested in people's decision to go to grad school cuz this yeah, is where yeah, yeah. cuz that's cuz that's kind of whether one follows through in the end or not, what it nominally is is a decision to pursue a career as a professional. Right. Scientist. Right. So was that an idea you had for a long time or did it just? Absolutely not. Oh, okay. No. So so this is where the modeling thing is important. Okay. Yeah. So I had done that research summer. Again, my main takeaway was like, this could, it's kind of cool, but I'm kind of bored. You know, I, I mm -hmm. my takeaway was not like, oh, I should definitely be a researcher. Mm -hmm. But then the perspective of my year off modeling was like, I had it pretty good when I was doing research. I had a mm. lot of flexibility to my schedule. Mm. People couldn't like dictate these ridiculous things about my, my like body and how I should be acting with other people because that was another part of this. There's this yeah. whole element of like, you know, making yeah. the photographer and your agent happy and stuff. Yeah, you can eat Cheetos and Mountain Dew if you want. I can eat Cheetos <laughs> and Mountain Dew. I don't know if that was your speed, but you could. Yeah, uh, peanut. <laughs> I really miss like peanut butter sandwiches. I was really <laughs> craving well, some peanut butter sandwiches. It's a pretty pedestrian sandwiches. thing to miss. Yeah. No, well, I don't know. There was a lot of it in the dining hall and it kind of fueled me through problems sets and I tried to anyway so I I get back and like uh it wasn't like a there was a lot of build up where I've been thinking about for a while but I kind of just I I had a newfound appreciation for I don't know how cool it was to have this job where like I could be broadly curious about these things and was actually yeah. encouraged you know because that yeah. also like me asking questions was like not a good thing that mm. year. So, you know, people liking that I asked questions mm. was great. I would like to say it was like super well thought out, but it was kind of like this switch flipped where suddenly I was yeah. like, oh, like I should go to grad school. This is the right thing for me. Yeah. This kind of brings us back to that point we were talking about before about like, oh, people forcing you to like, are your parents thinking you should do internships and like not do these other things? Because I mean, Honestly, like in terms of me sticking out grad school, I, I think the year off modeling was the best thing I could have done. I don't think if I had done, I think if I hadn't done that year, I don't, I don't know if I would have like really gotten through my PhD. I think I really yeah. needed that perspective. Well, a lot of people go through a PhD takes a long time and it's leading to an objective that for many people isn't certain whether it's what they really want. So it, right. a lot of people go through a period of doubt and having had another period of doubt 
Right. Helps you get have that right, out of your right, system. Right. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly. Well, and the other part of this, I think, was like, when I went into the modeling thing, like it wasn't like a super long period of time that I was doing it, but it, I, I was like, I am going to do this full tilt. Yeah, like this is 100% my life. And so having the experience of like, I can pursue something to my utmost in this totally different area and then do a 180 and like get back on track. I mean, I think it made me feel a little freer in my decision making. Like I can commit yeah. to doing this thing and do my best. And you know, if in the end being a scientist isn't right for me, I'll figure out yeah. the right thing. So. so by the way, this is where I learned who you were because you applied to Columbia. And I think you even came and visited maybe. I or, did. I remember yeah. talking with you. Yeah. I had a good like. But we definitely looked at the application and were like, oh, she's a model. Like we haven't had that before. <laughs> that, that, that's interesting, you know. I mean, it, it, it was a, definitely not a negative. I mean, you know, you'd been at Harvard and work with it, you know, so it didn't make us, it kind of was was cool, you know. Okay, that's good. <laughs> yeah, I was I was very worried it made me look like like a dilettante or something like that. But no, it I, didn't, uh, it didn't. It didn't. I, I don't know. I, I think I felt I was lucky in that, you know, I think Peter was quite supportive of me and yeah. stuff like that. But I did have a funny experience at Princeton. I was on some committee with some higher up, person this is like fast forwarding to when i'm in grad school I, i'm on this committee with this like higher up person at princeton who's some professor turned like some administrative role where she's in charge of a bunch of stuff i'm talking about them they find out i used to be a model and they thought it was cool and she's i'm like yeah i try to downplay it while i'm interviewing for things and she's like why you should upplay it i would because how could someone resist like interviewing a model with a phd or something like that i'm like Ugh. but but i think part of it is you don't want like i've talked to other female scientists who say this yeah. they want it to be clear that they got their position because of their intellectual work and not because of what right. they look like you know right. and i think that's right. really where my hesitation lies and getting back to your patriarchy question, I think yeah. that's the main thing that's caused me anxiety is yeah. like, I definitely don't want ever it to seem like I got anything because, you know, I look a certain way or right. something like that. Right. But Has anybody ever insinuated cause? Yeah. Not directly that I can think of, mm. which I feel well, that's fortunate good. about. I don't know what's said behind closed doors. Like, that's more what I no, worry about, No, but I mean, you know, maybe but. there's been a little pro. I mean, you know, yeah. I could easily imagine you could have had Some, like worse something. stories than you've told, you know, yeah, here. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, no, I, I think I've been lucky. Like, I, I feel grateful that I've worked with like good people and mm. had communities of people who are yeah. relatively less judgmental or something, yeah. so. Okay, anyway, so you go to so yeah. you go to Princeton. Let's talk about your research a little bit. What did you work on? Okay, in grad school. Uh, yeah. So, how did my research start? Originally, I was tentatively going to work with Isaac Held when I came. Part of what attracted me to Princeton, though, is they have this program with the Policy School called the. Yeah. It used to be called the Step Program, where you could yeah. spend a year working on like a more applied policy oriented project and take some classes there. Yeah. So tell me about that because that was an orientation you had coming in. It, and yeah. that you still have and that yeah. differentiates you from most of the people I came up with anyway and the most people that come through the programs you've been in for right. that matter. Right. And you're right, not right. unique but it's an orientation that yeah, yeah. So, so I mean, like going back to, you know, I did this like environmental policy major at mm. Harvard. So this interest had like existed for a while. And I had done the summer program in China and was very interested in desertification. Mm -hmm. in, in China, there are these crazy trends where the desert kind of the line of the desert has been expanding and it has all these like uh, effects on um, 
where the Chinese government has been kind of encouraging or perhaps in some uh, cases forcing people to move to cities um, mm -hmm. to try to ostensibly like sustain the landscape. And I, I just thought it was an interesting question. How mm -hmm. much of, is this driven by land use versus climate change? So I was interested in that problem. I thought it had some like policy related things. So the step program was on my radar. How the step program works at Princeton, this policy program is in your like second or your third year, you write a little proposal and you get a mentor who's typically either for the people in atmosphere and ocean science, Michael Oppenheimer or Denise Mazarell. And just to say, so you started with Isaac Held, and Isaac is like this, you know, great, brilliant right. guru of the field, but kind of fundamental atmospheric dynamics. And you wanted a little more, a little like, more applied, direct relevance to humans. Right. Exactly. Like I think Isaac was potentially interested in that. Like there were some yeah. ideas. It, it wasn't like he was uninterested, but I also could tell like some of the directions I potentially wanted to go in were less interesting to him as well. Yeah, and yeah, so, yeah. you know, I took oceanography with Gabe Vecchi mm -hmm. um, in the fall, mm -hmm. which was a great like first year grad class mm -hmm. and Gabe and I got along well. And so we started chatting in the spring, like about, I met with him once about research and mm -hmm. then I don't know, it just really clicked. And, yeah. you know, we'd have these great conversations where like half of it would be riffing about science and half of it would be riffing about who knows what yeah. else. And I was really grateful that like he provided the room for me to do yeah. that. Yeah. Um, he's funny and has a personality, more personality than some scientists. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And, well, he's very enthusiastic <laughs> yeah. too, but, you know, a super smart guy. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. So anyway... Through a series of conversations with him, I and and you know this interest I already had on like deserts in Asia, I ended up working on this problem trying to understand like whether the existence of these deserts in Asia that sort of exists at latitudes that deserts don't normally exist based on that the typical like kind of Hadley cell explanation that deserts occur in the subtropics uh -huh. where um, the Hadley cell descends. We were interested in the question of, okay, why do these deserts exist and what controls the climatology of the small amount of precipitation that does fall in that region? Tom Delworth had this idea. He was on my committee like, oh, like there's, you know, these mountains in this region. Maybe you should see if you can like get rid of the mountains in the GFL model there and see if that affects the de uh, the deserts. There's this like old... Uh, Manabe and broccoli paper where they do some simulations like that with a much lower res GFTL model and find that it like removes these like um, mid-latitude deserts basically. So we are doing something kind of in that vein, but because it's a higher res GCM, you can start to do these like more fine grain modifications to the topography, which was right. fun. So that was a lot of technical stuff and we're going to leave it all in. Yeah, yeah, sorry. Just so that the guests can tell that the former model is actually <laughs> not faking it and can speak jargon like the rest of us. <laughs> yeah, that was a lot of technical stuff. No, no, um, keep going. No, it's, yeah, yeah, we yeah. do that here. It's good. Okay, okay. So <laughs> Sometimes so, I translate it, but we're not going to do that. Okay. Good. Yeah. Now you, I speak science, as you can see. So anyway, I start, you know, I thought I'd do this whole dissertation about like environmental change in Asia. Mm -hmm. But once you start figure out how to like get rid of mountains in a GFDL model, which is actually a non, ends up being more annoying than it should be, perhaps. Mm -hmm. um, there are all these questions you want to do with that. So right. I. Um, so, so it means the, the climate model simulates there is climate and you right. say, 
what if the mountains weren't there? Exactly. And you, yeah. It's How, like, what, there's all kinds of things you can ask. Like, what are all the things that change if you get rid of the mountains? Because people argue, you know, this and that happened because of the mountains, but you can't. It's, it's the only way to really test that. Right. You can't get right. rid of the mountains in real life. Like, and so many things in our field, it's why we use models. Exactly. Exactly. And I should say that, like, you know, often when I talk about this work, people are thinking, oh, so you're interested in understanding some far past climate transition where the mountains were uplifting or something like that. Yeah, and that yeah. changed at the time. It was really just a way to probe why the climate is the way it is. Like yeah. why is the monsoon where it is? Wh yeah. What controls the distribution of tropical cyclones was something I ended up working on um, yeah. using this suite of experiments. So, Anyway, but but then I did this policy program and proposed I wanted to do something on compound extreme events because I, I think Michael Oppenheimer at one point. So was we should like, probably say what a compound extreme yeah, event is. Yeah, thank you. A compound <laughs> extreme event is just combinations of extreme events. So it could uh -huh. be the same, like two tropical cyclones in sequence. It could be a heat wave and drought occurring at the same time. In my case, I got interested in heat waves occurring in sequence because for you know most heat wave definitions at the time required that you kind of get hot and you stay hot for a while yeah. and we're like well but if you look at most historical heat waves temperature is bouncing up and down a lot so anyway that, that was kind of the direction we started going in long story short when you start working on heat waves it's hard to not start thinking about health impacts so i started yeah. chatting with epidemiologists and public health people and mm -hmm. i think like this is where i don't know i just started a professorship and i feel like i'm curious where my career is going to go and regard am i going to keep doing this you know basic climate dynamics stuff you know i get really excited at these problems at the interface where you're talking with public health experts or with my postdoc work talking with people at the World Bank, so Right, we'll so, so I, you know, because I'm afraid of running out of time, I, yeah. I really want to talk about this thing. So just to make sure we cover the bullet points before I, like, we pursue this yeah. topic you just raised. So you did a PhD where you worked on tropical cyclones, effective mountains on climate. You did this public health stuff, which we're going to talk about again in a minute. Sure. And then maybe we can sort of make a little bit short shrift of the postdoc at Columbia just because I'm involved in that and it's going to be a little embarrassing for me to like ask you about the time when technically I was like your supervisor. When the great Adam Sobel was I, my supervisor. I feel like I can't really, like that's just too awkward. So we can, given that we're interested in time, I'm, I would rather spend more. I mean, we had a great couple of years of you working at Columbia yeah, with, yeah. with our team on really tropical fun. cyclones while, you know, getting your other papers done and pursuing your other interests, right. which was totally great because you had yeah, all the thank you fellowship. For supporting that. No, I mean, we weren't actually paying you. The yeah, lab was yeah. paying you. So it was another <laughs> thing where we were lucky, you know, we got a free. Yeah, I guess I've never really been directly paid by someone for well, a while. Well, it's great so. because it means everybody's getting Jane for free in some sense, <laughs> you know, which is the best position yeah. to be in. Yeah, you know, yeah. Um, no, that's true. But I think what what's a thing that's really interesting about your work, not just for its own sake and not just to me because of where my own interests are going, but also because of, I think, where the field is going and where the world is going. Right. Um, is that you've, since graduate school up to the present, been continuing this, you know, basic climate dynamic questions like why is the monsoon the way it is and what do mountains have to do with that? Right, that's right. old school climate dynamics. Yeah, totally. But also these questions of, okay, so... How, uh, you know, what controls these particular kind of humid heat waves that can kill people? How and why do they kill people? You have to talk about public right. health. You have to look at kinds of data that have nothing to do with 
the physics of climate, but that are about other things you have to learn epidemiology. This is not traditional climate science. Sure. It's sort of a new interdisciplinary, you know, growing field of, of climate impacts, I guess we could say. Right. Applied climate science, adaptation science, you know, that, that isn't really a well-defined field. It's climate that's connected to lots of other things that one has to learn. Right. And you might publish in different journals. You have to collaborate with people who are outside of the field. You mentioned in your PhD, you worked with the World Bank, but you worked with epidemiologists and I don't know who else. And so you it's actually- During the postdoc, I was working with the World Bank. With during the postdoc, you yeah, yeah. the World Bank. But, you, but you've been working with people that study, you know, epidemiology and public health. And right. the point is you managed to get a job, you know, a faculty position, which is, you know, it's a success in our field. Right, or to right, get right. this kind of a, a job, it has a potential of long-term you know, stability, right. um, career stability, which is not that easy to, you know, to come by. But you got it in what is, you know, basically a traditional atmosphere, ocean science department. That's what it looks like from where, you know, where I sit. So in other words, most people are probably don't share this dimension with you. Sure. And so I think on the one hand, this is the where the field is going. Mm -hmm. And so you're the leading edge of it. And I think probably it's going to be a good thing for you it just in terms of pure career success. Like I think it's sure. good, it's good to be in a growing area. You're going to, I think, but on the other hand, you know, you have a lot of colleagues who don't really understand what you're doing. Don't do it yeah, themselves. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, it's natural to worry about whether, you know, how they're going to evaluate you, of you course. know, and your work that they yep. may not understand it. You know, your success may be measured in metrics different than the traditional ones. And it's worked so far. I mean, you got this job, yeah, but like, yeah, yeah. you know, so I just want to hear you talk about that and how, you know, what the issues are there and how you see them. Yeah. I mean, one thing I should say is, you know, the, a lot of these questions are things I'm still actively trying to figure out because how I arrived at this work was, you know, just kind of following my interest and what I thought was important. I wasn't necessarily being strategic about like, oh, I think this is the way the field is going. But I, I just kept perceiving problems where I felt like, you know, it's it's great we're writing all these papers about, you know, some climate-related phenomena, and we we think it's relevant to um, climate change and human impacts, but, you know, often that's like what we write as a paragraph in the introduction of the paper, and it's yep. very ambiguous how it's actually going to end up getting tied to human impacts. And what really yep. made me start thinking about this was the heat waves work I did, because I did all this work on heat waves, and like, you know, the community seemed to receive it pretty well, yeah. but I, I never really directly connected it to the health data. And so that has kind of sent me on this kind of long, and it's still some, some stuff has come out, but it's still work that we're still trying to push out, basically talking a lot with epidemiologists and uh, physiologists and stuff to, to try to understand like how climate scientists are interpreting the causes of say human heat stress. Is it reasonable? Do, how could we iteratively improve these models? Anyway, that that's kind of long winded, but on the like just career development side of things that you're mentioning and getting this faculty position, I, I think UCI's, uh, University of California, Irvine, which is where I am now, the Earth System Science Department is probably a little more interdisciplinary than, than most. So they do have like hardcore, you know, just climate dynamics people and oceanographers mm. and, but they also have like people who are more working on like ecosystem services, for example, and ecology, mm. because again, it's an earth system science department. It's not mm. like a atmospheric science department right. or earth science department. In a way, it makes sense that that's where I was hired because it's a place that my, my impression so far is they kind of value both sides of the coin of what I work on, both the fundamental climate science stuff and this stuff that's more oriented right. towards human impacts. 
because of where we are in the history of climate, climate science, and the politics in the United States and elsewhere in the world, certainly this is true in my time in the field, but I think even in your time of the field, the climate problem itself seems more severe, both in that it's gotten warmer, we're seeing tons of impacts, crazy extreme events causing huge damage. Right. You know, we can debate how attributable each one is to climate, but some of them are to some extent, sure. and we're seeing huge vulnerability. Totally. And the politics is failing. We've had generations and generations of IPCC reports, you know, getting more and more strong in their language and yet not amounting to much in terms of, you know, action on, on cutting emissions. So have you felt a, a growing sense of urgency that having been through traditional climate science institutions with other people who've been around a lot longer, you know, do you feel a need to do something different than in some sense what you were most obviously being trained to do, leaving the, you know, apart from the policy? It's a good question. I do think like it wasn't obvious to me that I wanted to be a professor. It wasn't like, oh, I don't want to be a professor, but I spent a lot of time like doing informational interviews with people who work more in policy spaces and people who worked in industry because I was trying to figure mm. out, okay, like this problem is somewhat urgent. I don't want to spend my life doing something that we think is relevant and may or may not be relevant mm. to solving the problem, which is part of the reason I worked on that report about fusion energy, actually, that mm -hmm, was like mm -hmm. a mid PhD crisis of like, man, I'm just characterizing the problem. I should be working on the solutions. I just don't like the idea, and, and this is probably to the detriment of my publication record, but I, I don't want to be publishing another paper basically saying in a different way the same thing that another paper has said with regard to extreme events, like, oh, just like heat waves are getting worse. Here's yet another definition that, that shows us that. But ultimately, what I really want to answer is like those compound heat waves changing, does that really matter for human health impacts? And that becomes a much more difficult problem to, to answer. Uh -huh. um, part of it is from a research prioritization perspective. If you're thinking about extreme events, you have the hazard, the vulnerability, and the exposure. Like I'm always thinking, especially after working on this tropical cyclone project with you and Susanna during yeah. my postdoc, like where should we be putting the effort? Does like incrementally improving our wind fields, is that actually gonna make a big difference for modeling mm. this risk or should we be focusing on the vulnerability and exposure? And to be perfectly honest, like when you asked me to do this interview, I was like, I'm happy to talk, but like, sure you don't want to do it 10 years from now because I'll have a lot more solid answers to these things hopefully 10 years from now. But well, I, We can do it 10 years from now and skip the modeling part. Okay, okay, good. <laughs> I'm glad we can, we can skip that. That That's recorded for posterity. <laughs> um, but, you know, a question that's been in my head a lot recently is like where is the greatest uncertainty coming for risk analysis? The way for yeah. like climate projections, you know, we think about internal variability, model structural uncertainty and you know, forcing uncertainty. I feel like we should be moving towards a future where we can think about um, how we quantify extreme event risk in a similar way to be able to figure out like, where do we need to be focusing our energy as a community and understanding, you know, vulnerability, for example. Right, so you brought up exposure and vulnerability. And I, I said, you know, that we did, I didn't want to go into your time at Columbia, but I should we should say that, you know, Susanna Camargo and I and, and others, uh, Chai Ying Lee and, and uh, Mike Tippett and others that we've worked with have been working for, 20 years on hurricanes and right. have been moving closer and closer to applied work that actually says something directly about human impacts. And your postdoctoral work was the first 
time that actually happened in our research group. So you brought in a crude way, but we did it. Well, so, you brought yeah. the human dimension that we, you know, into our work that we had been going that way for a long time and hadn't had somebody to, you know, took it on and did it. So that was great. And so which leads me to the sort of question, I, you know, this is a sort of unfair question to ask an academic generally, but you're the <laughs> best poised, to, you know, just to, to answer it of, of people I talk to. So, I mean, do you think about what people call the, you know, the theory of change? I mean, do you think about how the relevance of your academic work might actually influence something that happens in the world? I mean, do you get, is that a yeah. concern that, yeah. I, I don't know. I'd say I could sit here and explain what I think my theory of change is for the different dimensions of my work. So all this work I do on mountains and climate, like it's very curiosity driven, but I think in my head, I have to reconcile, to be engaged with that work, I really have to reconcile that as like, if we don't have a good understanding of the climate in the present, I don't know how we're going to do a good job of projecting. Yeah, let's not, we don't need a theory to change for that. That's okay, basic good, climate good. science. I would say that gives you a kind of credibility right. in a certain right. circles that will probably help you with the applied work. Right, um, right. But so it's, what's the it's theory a foundation. of change with the applied well, work? Well, I mean, it's, and to be fair, like a theory of change about how one's work is going to influence the outside world is something that, that almost by definition, academics don't ask themselves. And so me asking of you is kind of unfair except that it's sort of the direction you're going. And, yeah. and I think it, we should be asking ourselves if we're gonna write this boilerplate stuff when we ask for funding and we're gonna say right. like decision makers need our, you know, we should actually have some clue of how that might conceivably happen or some, not, at least not just say dumb stuff about it. So I'm just wondering how far your thoughts have gone in that direction. Right, I mean, so for a while with the heat wave stuff, the way I was thinking of that is how we think about heat wave warning systems typically is you know, you have like uh, two days above 95 degrees and that heat wave warning goes off in New York or something like that. But I, I think people haven't really thought carefully about are those warning systems still going to make sense as in this like non-stationary climate or do we need to rethink how our heat wave warning systems work, for example. Mm -hmm. So there then you get into all these questions about like, well, is it really just temperature that matters or is it temperature and humidity? Um, and that's kind of the direction I've gone in right right now. That's what I've been thinking about a lot, though we'll still, you know, need, need to publish more in that direction. With the tropical cyclones. So work, wait, just to pause yeah, there. So you yeah. could imagine someday collaborating with people who design heat that's wave my early hope. warning system. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. So so this is a rant I've like gone on a, a number of times, but with, with you, I think. But if you read epidemiological studies, they generally find that temperature really matters a lot for human health outcomes like mortality, but humidity doesn't matter that much in their time series mm -hmm. analysis. It mm -hmm. ends up having a small effect. Physiological mm -hmm. studies, on the other hand, where you stick someone in a room and crank up the temperature and humidity, find a huge effect of right. humidity. And so I think like... Climate scientists, there's been a lot of awesome work done using projections of wet bulb temperature, which basically combines temperature and humidity to model human heat stress. But until we've reconciled like whether humidity actually really matters between right. these two health fields, I think I just, you know, that that's the kind of thing where I, I, I just don't want to be doing a ton of work that we're, we're saying matters for human impacts. And it's really... Right. We're not as confident in that. I, mean, I don't know how well. Yeah, it's but. funny because the you know everyday human experience of anybody who's lived in a human climate says that humidity has to be important. Yeah, and yet it's somehow surprisingly difficult to prove that. I mean, climate scientists sort of now take it for granted, and yet it's funny that people who actually study human health, some of them don't. Yeah, seem to be convinced. I don't know. I I think in the end, like we might find that humidity 
I think it could very well be the case and it might be significantly more likely to be the case that humidity does matter, but I just feel like we should really, you know, when there's a whole branch of health research that like generally thinks it doesn't, I, I think we should figure that out, you know? But yeah. so, so far in my like relatively short scientific career, I feel like I see a lot of like this heat wave thing, also the tropical cyclone risk stuff I, I was doing with you, you know, I, I think it's not like I'm a, a sociologist or some expert right. on the human dimension, but I I like to think my willingness and excitement to start thinking about those things and really critique the hardcore climate research we're doing with an eye to what are the things that actually matter for human impacts. I, I hope that there's, and I think there's still space there to to do that kind of work. But something that was very influential for me is during my PhD, I became a student member of the AMS Board of Environment and Health, and mm -hmm. that's- American Meteorological yeah, Society. Yeah, yeah, and that's a committee that's primarily like health researchers who think about the impact of the environment, and I'm slightly unusual for that committee in that like I'm someone who actually like runs climate models and stuff, yeah. but it's been really interesting communicating with them, and I found it fun, so. Anyway, this, this isn't a very well-formed series of thoughts, and I think that's partially because the stage of my career I'm at is yeah. I'm like, I am building a research group right now. And like yeah. every day I'm grappling with these questions yeah, yeah, yeah. of like, am I going to be a hardcore climate dynamicist or am I going to be right. someone who knows how all that works, but really gets excited about this human impact stuff. And I hope that the way the field is, either ones could be viable, but I think it's still, the field is evolving, yeah. you know? Well, one, you know, the thing we described about being on the AMS Board of Health and these projects where you're talking to the epidemiologists and talking to the, you know, as a climate scientist and where, you know, you, you have some doubt over whether they really need your perspective. I think one of the things that happens in these, in, in work like this, where it's really aimed at, at an applied outcome yep. and where there's often means you almost guaranteed to mean you need to sort of team of people with some different disciplinary expertises and maybe some people who aren't from any academic discipline at all, you know, practitioners of one kind or another, is that you aren't necessarily using your most cutting edge, like findings from your own field, right. rather you're providing an anchor that the perspective of your discipline is represented so that nobody else is going to say something crazy and right. follow some dumb path because you're, you know what I mean? It's right, you're, right, right. But, and so it makes it harder to sort of get credit for it in academia because you're not pushing the envelope necessarily right. within your own field. You right. are in a sort of world sense, but your role is not as- You're integrating more than yeah, anything Yeah, it's not else, always right? identifiable. So I think that's the challenge that we're going to yep. face as academic institutions say they want this kind of stuff to happen, but right. sort of don't know how to value it. The other thing, as long as we're on theory of change, I mean, you mentioned the tropical cyclone stuff and, and we're kind of giving short shrift to it. But since I'm involved in it, I can say what the theory of change is. And right. you're pushing this forward more than our group ever has before is hopefully it's going to support climate adaptation finance. So this is, right. you know, countries in the world that are relatively poor, global south, developing countries, whatever you want to say, that are suffering some of the most severe impacts of climate and climate change, didn't cause the problem, are going to need lots of money to adapt no matter what happens, even if, we, right. you know, and aren't getting it. But some of it could come from private sector. Some of it could come from NGOs. Hopefully, some of it will come from you know governments of richer countries. But to direct funding to adaptation projects, which could be of many, many different kinds, the people giving the money want to see some science supporting like what is the risk here? You know, what is the yep. problem in this place? How much could this solution help it? And so, a lot of times, that science is lacking. 
the science yeah. of looking at exactly how some given type of extreme event really causes damage in a particular country and how that is being affected by the, the warming climate. So that's a particular kind of applied science that has to be done and has to be focused on what's happening. And so you're doing some of that and we're working with some partners yeah. you know, on some potential adaptation projects. So there's a pretty direct theory of change there. You know, we're still all figuring it out and don't really know, right. you know, how effective we can be or, you know, or learning what the what the possibilities are. But I think you're, you know, from, from my point of view, from our research group, you are sitting at the leading edge of that. So yeah, yeah. So I'm I'm very excited by this work because I feel like from way back when I started studying environmental science and policy, this is this is kind of the stuff I I thought hopefully I'd be doing at some point mm -hmm. is like actually, you know, transferring some data or some kind of thinking that would would lead to some outcome on the ground. And I think I was kind of, you know, I'm someone who can get interested enough in these more like dynamicy problems that like I've gone in a lot of different directions. But I, I like am really excited by this work. You know, I was just on talking with a guy on this project we're hopefully going to be doing with the Red Cross and mm -hmm. uh, the Philippines the other day trying to create insurance product that would supply money for mangrove restoration. But anyway, so stuff like that I think is really cool. I think my anxiety as a young researcher is that, you know, is the academic tenure system set up in a way that can yeah. support that? And right. if some of my answers to questions have been a bit mealy-mouthed, it's because I'm still trying to figure out how I can fit in there such that I can really make this strong. And, and I think like from my perspective, it's very clear, as I was saying before, you know, we spend so much time thinking about the hazard. We got to be thinking about the vulnerability and exposure and how we integrate that with the hazard just yeah. as much to really robustly be projecting risks and how they change with global warming. So in my head, that's really true. I think I'm still trying to figure out how that translates to the traditional academic markers of success. Yeah. And if it doesn't, then is there space in the academic community to be doing stuff that might be perceived more as broader impacts, but has a very vigorous intellectual component to it? Well, I think I just want to say again, I think a thing that's happening in the field is that there is a clear recognition on the part of the old existing institutions. I mean, by which I mean universities, the National Academy of Sciences, you know, all these groups that put out reports saying what should happen, the U.S. global climate research. There's there's a recognition that the type of work you're talking about doing is what should be happening more. Right. Everybody says this. Right. And yet a lot of the people saying it, or at least agreeing with the people that say it, don't have much experience doing it. And so there needs to be an evolution. And the uh, our existing systems of, of evaluating academics don't necessarily, you know, you're, you're expressing attention that you know, you, you get rewarded for writing papers in a particular field where people in that field know your work and can see the contribution right. you made. And this kind of work is, in some cases, it's that the field doesn't quite exist yet, or it's a combination of different fields and the people are going right. to judge different aspects of your work and maybe not appreciate right. the right, part right. that they don't understand. That's a problem of all interdisciplinary work. Maybe part of it is that you're part of collaborative teams where your role isn't as obvious. Maybe part of it is that some of the outcomes are not publications. And so even though everybody says that's great, Jane, that you, you know, helped support right. mangrove restoration in the Philippines, but like, where's the paper? Yeah, yeah. You know, and exactly. you probably can write a paper about that, but it'll right. be a different kind of a paper. And so it's probably I think, not going to be a nature paper. Like well, I don't know. Like, but I mean, maybe, we'll maybe it would be. I don't know. <laughs> but, but you know, it doesn't have to be. But I think the people like me who've been around a long time and who see this happening and who think it should happen have to try to we're failing you on some sense <laughs> and failing ourselves if we can't make the institutions 
learn how to appreciate this more. And by the way, there's there's a diversity, equity, and inclusion element here too, because just demographically, if you look at the people who want to do the work you're describing and the people who have traditionally been in the field, the field has typically been white and male. Right. And the women and people of color tend, to, I think the there are studies that have looked at this and that show that this kind of applied work oh, that's interesting. draws that that. The, that constituency more. So it's a whole lot of things happening at the same time that we want to change, you know, the field to change in this direction for a lot of reasons, and but we don't quite know how to do it. It's interesting that you say this is non-traditional for our departments in particular, because one of the things I've found is that like, yes, it is true that some of the stuff I'm doing feels like highly interdisciplinary in the context of why I'm at Atmosphere and Ocean Science Department but going over to civil engineering or geography and it it feels more like this is just sure. you know the kind of stuff you you do and so right. I mean you're right there's a lot of people who do the kind of work you're talking about but I think if we're coming from the perspective of the climate problem yeah you know the global warming problem the scientists that have defined that and the science that has defined that which is like people building climate models and running climate models and explaining how they work and, and explaining the greenhouse effect right. and cloud feedbacks and, you know, the jet streams and the, you know, the Arctic ice. Right. You know, those, that's a field that historically grows out of physics right. and maybe applied math. Right. And so physics is a field that defined itself sort of by making historically by making problems simpler and simpler until you could solve it right you start with the hydrogen atom and then you go right. to the right that's a great way of phrasing it, it. We're, this is the opposite direction that right. in a way we have to go in right yeah. you know people who think about climate adaptation is a very local problem and you have to think about people and culture and you know societies but but the global climate problem is kind of been defined by physicists looking at the earth from space yeah and thinking on a global scale so there's a tension there yeah. and i think that's what it you know it can feel a bit a bit messy to be adding in, like even in my postdoc work, I was yeah. adding in more layers of complexity into this tropical cyclone model. And it's for very good reason. I mean, we literally, we can model wind, but we can't model dollars and how do you bridge that gap? But it also, you know, it, it does go against like fundamental physics training. It's out of necessity, not right. out of this is going, and we're going to be able to write down some beautiful equation right. that sometimes you, know, you have to be more really empirical. Enjoy. Yeah, you're not you starting. Have be, you have to do. I mean, this is something we talked about over and over again during my postdoc was like, just gotta like, there's not going to be a perfect solution. Just do what you can with the data that right. exists. You know, well, you, when you're talking about people, impacts on people, you can't start from laws of nature right. that are well known and you know that are provable in the lab. Right. And in physics, right. we like to think we start from that, but you have to give that up at some point because or you won't be able to do anything. Yeah, yeah. And maybe maybe that's a little bit it's it's like kind of a, a taste thing. I think if you're coming from like doing a PhD at the Princeton program at GFDL and and I I had a great time during my PhD, but I think something that weighed on me a little bit is I felt like there was a bit of a hierarchy in that program of like the people who do like theoretical atmospheric dynamics, like that's the peak of the pyramid. And like, there's all this other cool stuff you can do and it's like good science and everything. But like yeah. that's, if you're really smart, that's what you should be doing. Right. And I think I'm still kind of coming to terms with who I am as a scientist and, you know, being like, yeah, like maybe that's not my jam, but like the stuff I'm doing is really cool. And I think it's as intellectually engaging just in right. different, maybe slightly different ways. Well, if I could, you know, to, to like, try to be encouraging i mean i think so there is a hierarchy there that's that's what we're talking about you, yeah, know, you, yeah you put your finger on it like there is that hierarchy in the field that the purest you know climate dynamics which is what i was trained in and what i did for most of my career that's you know that's rewarded in the culture of the 
particular little niche of academia that we live in, but that also has a major role in the science of climate that the world sees. Right. And the fact that you come out of that culture, but you're doing this other stuff that's sort of growing in importance, but still a little bit foreign yeah. to many of us. I think what how it I would hope it will, could work for you is that like you're doing this different stuff and we don't know quite how to evaluate it. And so that could make your career hard, except that you have the cred <laughs> with us, you know, so that, you know what I mean? There's it's, certain the people well, that are judging you kind of already think you're OK. If I can so, try to bring the narrative <laughs> together, I feel like there was a, it, it kind of comes back like when I was playing grad school, I was very lucky in that I was coming from Harvard. So even though I was model and there was this kind of non-traditional <laughs> thing, but she's coming from Harvard, so she's probably okay. Like, I right. guess, like, if you have certain types of privilege, hopefully you can use, I don't know, I guess I'm trying to use yeah. whatever privilege I've well, been lucky to have in a positive it's way. Not, but it's not, so here's not just privilege, it's also disciplinary, like, you... I guess you could call it privilege, but like you could say, well, okay, she's writing these papers about public health that we don't really understand and don't know how to value, but okay, but she knows how to write papers about how if you take the mountains down, yeah. what happens to the <laughs> yeah. monsoon? And she explained that with some equations or something. So, you know, she's okay. You know, she published yeah, in Journal yeah. of Climate or whatever. So, yeah. I mean, if if climate wasn't changing, you know, I, I do like curiosity driven research is like super important, but I also think we're at a point in the climate problem where morally, we should be trying to be a little strategic about where we're putting right. our intellectual energy as well yeah. to have an impact. So I've kept you a long time. Is there anything else we didn't talk about that we should have that you want to cover? No, I don't think so. I mean, we spent so long talking about the modeling thing, which I should have maybe edited. But the thing that I will say about that that I think is good about what we talked about is I think I spent a lot of time during my PhD feeling like, oh, maybe I, and, and this is, I think, in large part a gendered thing maybe i can't be a serious scientist because i like flowers or i dress this way <laughs> or i sometimes like to google taylor swift or you know something like that and mm -hmm. and so i think the good part maybe of telling that story is that hopefully other people who are thinking about being scientists or applying to grad school can listen to it and be like wow like you know i maybe my i can be a scientist even though yeah. i have this interest that's like totally non-scientific and maybe even non-intellectual because modeling is not an intellectual enterprise so anyway but, right yeah, yeah that's uh yeah that's a commonly accepted uh, truism yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no computational <laughs> modeling on the other hand. right <laughs> i should have been more specific right. so yeah okay thanks so much jane it's a great conversation and even better now that i know that I beat out Tyra Banks for it. <laughs> Thanks so much, Adam. Yeah, it was it was fun chatting. Okay, enjoy the rest of AGU. Okay. This podcast has been a vehicle for me to struggle with the tension between doing science to understand the universe and doing it to benefit human society. And Jane is struggling with that too much earlier in her career than I did, and I really admire the clarity and self-awareness that she brings to it. I'm looking forward to the great things in her future, but for now, I'm so happy I had this chance to talk to her at AGU. And I'm proud that we only made the climate model, fashion model joke a couple of times. My co-creator and creative director is Melanie Bielli. Our editing and audio post-production are by Duotone Audio Group, where our editor and post-producer is Stefan Wiener, and our audio engineer is Livia Wicks. My creative consultant and spiritual advisor is Minnie Jardine, 
and our original music is by Eli Sobel. I'm Adam Sobel. This is Deep Convection.